Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Hello, everyone. I'm Roy St. Clair, Business Development Manager at Genexus Healthcare Systems, filling in for our regular host, Dr. Martin Dawes. Today, we're really excited to have a guest, Colleen Keenan. Colleen is a consultant with Advisory Board's Clinical Innovators Council, a research membership designed to help suppliers strengthen their relationships with integrated delivery networks and the providers that are inside of them. Colleen, you joined Advisory Board in 2016, spent over three years working on the Pharmacy Executive Forum Research Membership and really supporting health system pharmacy leaders there. And it's really my understanding that you've worked on a whole range of topics from opioid stewardship, drug diversion, medication reconciliation, disruptive trends, really across health system pharmacy, including ambulatory clinical pharmacy models. And the real subject of this conversation, your most recent topic, pharmacogenomics. So quickly before we jump in, you've graduated magna cum laude from Wake Forest University with a bachelor's degree in business enterprise management, concentration in marketing, and you've leveraged that to get into health policy, this is part of your minor, and really into the administration of healthcare and how to lead with healthcare. So it's a fascinating background, glad to have you on the show. I just want to start with a question that I think will really frame this discussion and give us a nice foundation to work from which is if you had to explain pharmacogenomics to a seven-year-old, how would you describe it? Thanks for having me on, Rory. You really did your homework on the background there. I've been an advisory board for a little over four years now and worked mostly with the pharmacy side and now a little bit on the pharma and device side. So it's been a really interesting time. But to answer your question, with my most recent research this year on pharmacogenomics, I don't know if this is really a seven-year-old level, but Basically, the way I describe pharmacogenomics to help break kind of a scary word down is it's really a process to identify any issues or maybe predispositions that are in your DNA that could affect the medications you take to treat your disease or condition. So it sounds like a scary word, but when you break it down, it's a pretty straightforward concept. I love that. I think it, it is really critical for all of us in these spaces, these cutting edge complex spaces to make sure we actually are able to conceptualize what we're working on in a simple way and communicate that simply. And I think that's a nice place to start is thinking about this just in terms of the personalized genetics, the personalized factors, the things inside of us that can alter how we're going to respond to important medications. Your work at pharmacogenomics is by advisory board. And I think it would be helpful for us to frame what the company does a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about advisory board and the work that you're doing there? Yeah, definitely. So Advisory Board is really a best practice research firm, and we work across the healthcare continuum. So our traditional business is really centered around the different stakeholders in the hospital. We have different research teams that are dedicated to those stakeholders. So maybe the chief nursing officer, chief strategy officer, chief medical officer, my previous team, the chief pharmacy officer, just to name a couple. And now most recently, I work on the side of our business that partners with suppliers and service providers to those hospitals and health systems. And most specifically, I work with pharma and device companies. But overall, our ultimate goal is to provide objective insights 
on hot topics and help translate them in a way that's easy to understand, kind of like what you just said about breaking down the word pharmacogenomics. And we really can do that through a research report. It's more traditional, kind of a longer brief. We do a lot of infographics, blog posts, webinars, you name it. It's really just trying to help break down these hot topics in healthcare for different stakeholders throughout the healthcare ecosystem. It's such an interesting thing to say that you're going to work on hot, innovative topics, but that your core role in them is going to be to distill them down into something really approachable <laughs> through this reporting. And as I look at that set of things you've worked on through the introduction, from opioids to, to pharmacogenomics and all of these things in between, I'd love to ask you, which one has jumped out to you or which ones as the most interesting or surprising? The two that really stick out to me are opioid stewardship and drug diversion. They're kind of connected. I started with opioid stewardship and that led to drug diversion research. I think my drug diversion research made me not want to be admitted to a hospital ever. <laughs> it's pretty scary. So that's when either patients or employees take drugs from the health system and either sell them illegally or take them illegally. And it leads to a lot of complications and adverse events. I just learned so much through that. That was really surprising to me to hear some of these stories, which are honestly really sad, but it was important work to do to help health systems get a plan in place to really monitor that and be vigilant about it to prevent drug diversion happening in their health system. That is surprising and I think worthy of an entire additional podcast episode. Anytime you dig into the topic of adverse drug reactions or medication personalization or medication safety, you really realize that it is an incredibly huge problem and deep problem and one with a lot of different cross-cutting aspects that are worth research briefs, such as the one you're preparing. Let's bridge into the core topic here for us, which is pharmacogenomics. So can you tell us a little bit at a high level around this research that you've done most recently with pharmacogenomics and how you did it, how did it all start, and really what jumped out most for you as uh, really kind of surprising? Yeah. So pharmacogenomic was a little bit of a different topic for me in the way that it started. Usually our topics are very member driven. So we call our health system client members, but we're really on the phone with stakeholders every day from across the healthcare ecosystem to understand what are their challenges? What are their biggest priorities? And then that's usually how we identify the topics that we'll focus on in a given year. But pharmacogenomics really didn't surface that way. I've been starting to read more about that topic when I was back working closely with our pharmacy leaders on topics like medication reconciliation or pharmacists in primary care, but I didn't hear of too many established pharmacogenomics programs across the board or much chatter about it on a daily basis, but I really thought it was an important topic. Like I said, the concept is really essential to providing precise prescribing decisions. So this research is really what I call kind of an up and coming topic that we wanted our pharmacy leaders to learn more about and pay attention to. And it's kind of grown a little bit outside of just the pharmacy leaders to really stakeholders across the healthcare ecosystem. But overall, my team's goal with digging into this topic earlier this year was to help make pharmacogenomics a more accessible concept and bring together those stakeholders from across the industry to understand it and understand what their role in the process is to work together to grow the concept, to grow programs and make it more accessible. So you brought up an interesting piece there, which is that usually these projects start from outside of advisory board. They are starting from a pull from industry, from the health systems. But this one was a little bit developed internally. It was spotted within advisory board as an up-and-coming emergent area and worthy of additional work. How common is that? 
Yeah, I'd say we do a mix of work. Usually when I said earlier, best practices, that's something that you talk to a hundred health systems about one topic and you identify stories or strategies that are proven and replicable. We do a mix of work, like I said, on the other side of the spectrum of things that we think are really interesting. We may not be able to show that they're replicated in the industry just yet, but we think they're worth talking a little bit more about digging into sharing what we're learning so far. So I think it was you know, kind of normal for us to do something like that, but I just thought that pharmacogenomics really warranted some extra attention. And that's kind of how we got into this earlier this year. That's fascinating. It really aligns with so much of what we hear from health systems in the sense that all of them are using pharmacogenomics in some way, but it also isn't widespread across most of them. The implementations are often limited or non-existent and ordering is done in small batches and small groups from individual providers that are ordering them. And our experience has been a lot of people trying to rationalize that and figure Mm -hmm. out how do we standardize and operationalize pharmacogenetics as a part of a regular pharmacy practice across these big complex systems. Is that very similar to what you ran into in your research? The piece that you just made me think of is a conversation we've had probably over and over again throughout this research is the tension between pharmacogenomics and this idea of care variation reduction that's so big in hospitals and health systems right now, which some people would say they are in tension, but we really think that they're not. To your point, I think having more personalized medicine can help reduce some of that unexpected care variation happening down the line. So I think that's really what I heard coming up the most. I don't think pharmacogenomics programs are widespread enough to think about standardizing them across the board. I think most people are just trying to get a foot in the door right now. But it would be interesting to think about how could we replicate this process down the line, like I said, maybe becoming a best practice later on down the road. Absolutely. One of the views we've taken from early on in working in this space is that pharmacogenetics are really one variable amongst many when you're trying to make safer, more informed, more evidence-based medication decisions. What's implicit in that, though, is that there are all these other things that you can be doing as you're trying to improve, as you put it, the safety or reduce the care variation. And those are very important, right? So if a system's trying to go in that way, pharmacogenetics can be an important piece, but not the only piece. Can you give me an example of some other ways that these health systems were trying to reduce that care variation or support medication safety and reduce adverse drug reactions? This was a huge piece of our work with our health system pharmacy leaders. And a lot of people have done what they can to do the low-hanging fruit things to reduce variation. There are a lot of broader efforts happening throughout the health system, but I'll speak to the medication-related ones. And they mostly happen through the PNT committee, the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee in the health system, who are the ones setting formulary decisions. And where the care variation piece comes in here, it happens with prescribing decisions. So a lot of people are trying to standardize drugs in a given category. So there's so many different types. You have the brand, you have the generic. People are trying to standardize what their prescribers are prescribing. So the goal there is to make purchasing decisions easier, get cost savings from purchasing at scale, but also kind of reduce those higher cost medication purchases if you can by standardizing across the board. Now, that's easier said than done and often not possible in some niche medication categories, but that's the overall goal. That makes a lot of sense, just, you know, intuitively. I think a thing that that leaves out when we think about medication safety is you have patients who are going to get a new medication. Maybe there's been a new diagnosis or there is a need to switch medications. And this is 
that prescribing decision you mentioned. That's that point of prescribing. What can we do there? And that very much looks like considering formulary, considering pricing. There's a whole bunch of considerations there that I think are really important and we, uh, we certainly highlight in our work. But there's another aspect to it. I'd love to hear your view on this, what you heard from the health systems, which is related to the status check, the medication review. And this can be everything from standard MTM practice or medication therapy management through comprehensive medication management and kind of all of the bits in between. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw pharmacogenetics as a piece of this pharmacy-led medication management piece? Yeah, so I did a lot of work on medication reconciliation a few years back, which kind of breaks it down a little bit further, just checking what medication patients are taking, taking their medication history to see if it will impact other medications they may be prescribed during the hospital stay or in an outpatient setting. And the thing that came up most often were the adverse drug events related to that. And you can kind of start to see how pharmacogenomics and medication reconciliation are related. And the broader idea, to your point of medication therapy management, is just digging a little bit deeper into the patient's genetic makeup to see how that will impact future prescribing decisions to prevent adverse events. So they kind of have the same goals. But pharmacogenomics is just another technology, another tool that can help make that a little bit more efficient. No, that, that very much lines up with what we've heard, right? If you have a polypharmacy patient and they are on mm-hmm. eight different medications, you're really going to want to know if they have renal hepatic impairment for, I think, right. pretty widely understood obvious reasons. And this is the layer on top of that. It says patients get more complex, they're polychronic, they are on a handful of medications that are oftentimes not working for them as well as they'd like. From that standpoint, rather than necessarily the point of prescribing, what is your view on pharmacogenetics as an important part of the tool set? And do you see health systems using it right now? Is that uh, an important use case or, or one that's a little bit nascent and not as focused on as this point of prescribing? I think it's a little bit more of the latter of what you just said. I don't think pharmacogenomics programs are widespread right now in health systems. We're starting to see a little bit of growth in the provider space in the same primary here, but it's hard to justify a program to get those resources to connect with all the vendors that you need to integrate the analytics if you're not seeing a lot of the return on it. So if you're not getting reimbursement for those services, if you're not in an academic medical center who can fund the program through research purposes. So I think it's an important tool that we could see more use of, but right now it's just not widespread. Yeah, and you mentioned a few challenges there. I'd like to dig into that. You mentioned the choosing vendors, actually understanding who to go with and when to go with them. I think patient identification as good candidates is an important part of the problem. But you also mentioned getting the analytics infrastructure in place, understanding reimbursement. Can you dig in a little bit on what the challenges are that you've uncovered and in particular, which ones you think are really the biggest roadblocks as it stands today? Yeah, I think the ones that I mentioned are some of the biggest ones that pop into my mind when I'm thinking about the challenges from the health system perspective. And again, I've kind of alluded to some of these challenges so far, but the biggest ones in my mind are getting that leadership buy-in to get resources to dedicate to the program. So skilled staff to do it, the IT resources, the workflow implementation is another huge hurdle to overcome once you do get that buy-in. There's just so many moving pieces of the workflow that you need to work out ahead of time and so many different stakeholders to engage to make sure that process flows smoothly. 
And the one that I call it especially is the IT front. So making sure that you can have a way to integrate those pharmacogenetic results into the EHR in a way that's actionable and easy to understand. And then the final biggest one that I said before is the reimbursement piece of this. There's not a ton of, of reimbursement in the pharmacogenomics space to date. It mostly centers on a few use cases, and I can get into those if, you, if you'd like. But like I said before, if you're not an academic medical center who could fund this stuff on their own, or if you don't have patients who are willing to pay out of pocket, it's hard to get enough reimbursement to cover the cost of launching a program. Most of what I've heard talking to health system pharmacogenomics programs is that they're doing it because it's the best thing for the patient. And while that's great to hear, not every health system can do that just because it's the right thing, because it is definitely a resource investment. It's a fascinating point. And through some of our work, we talk to people who say, this makes nothing but financial sense, but because there's so much uncertainty still around the deployment that you mentioned, everything from figuring out skilled resources, to the workflow, to IT integration, so many of these variables that aren't hard-baked into people's understanding of what will work, a lot of people are shying away from it. And I think that's a critical point, which is that until this uncertainty is resolved and people can step in and support it, there will be that hesitation. They're going to want to see the business case outside of the academic centers. And then we can come back to that. I think there's a couple more good points there, but you brought up something which is promising use cases. Surely in this work, you came across some that are more promising than others. Can you dig into that a little? Yes, I mainly saw three big areas pop out when I was starting to talk to different stakeholders. So we spoke with pharmacy leaders who are leading their pharmacogenomics programs. We spoke with payers, vendors, pharma companies. And what we were hearing was there were three main areas where pharmacogenomics has been proven to date. So first and foremost is in oncology for obvious reasons. We're seeing a lot of growth in using pharmacogenomics to look into the tumors and provide more targeted oncology treatments. The next is in cardiovascular diseases. And then the third is in mental health, so specifically for depression and anxiety. And the reason that those three areas kept popping up over and over again was that's where the most investment has been to date. The most evidence has been shown that they work, which therefore makes insurers more likely to cover testing in those areas. And then, like I mentioned before, kind of this fourth pseudo category that came up was for walk-in patients who are people that we'd call the worried well population. So they're mainly just curious to understand their genetic makeup, and they're willing to pay out of pocket for the test. So then they can store their genetic results in the EHR, and that can inflect future prescribing decisions. But those are the kind of four categories that we saw coming up that programs were focusing on. That's really interesting. When I hear of those four areas, maybe focusing on the top three, oncology, cardiovascular, mental health, what I hear from a review of the literature is areas with immensely complicated medication decisions and oftentimes medication needing to be added at the same time as the patient is already on a handful of others or in the case of mental health, really high rates of medication failures, where for reasons mm -hmm. related to side effects or efficacy, there's all these components of fit. They don't quite work for the patient. And that's an area where I think this added layer of data and information and insight into that person can help. But your one around the worried well is interesting because with pharmacogenetics, I think you probably came across this, the rate of actionable variants, the rate of things coming up in that test that are going to link to a certain medication that you'd want to change dose or change, actually change medications overall, it's quite high in the general population. Did you come across those mm -hmm. kind of rates? I mean, how much of a population you might expect to have an actionable variant of some kind? 
Yeah. One of the most surprising things I came up during my research was that fact. I think just learning about the potential impact that pharmacogenomics can have. And like I said, we're mostly hearing about those few populations where programs are focusing, but the potential reach is so much bigger. One example that sticks in my mind is that about how 99% of U.S. veterans carry at least one pharmacogenomic variant that affects drug efficacy. And that's huge. I think there's just so much more we can learn here about potential applications in different patient populations and really how to expand the reach of pharmacogenomics. We just haven't dug in yet in those areas where there's not as much evidence. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. One component is the addition of research to broaden condition areas. The other one is the idea, and this really changes versus a lot of other diagnostic testing, is the idea with pharmacogenetics that you test once, but you're going to want to be able to reference those results over time. Because it might be that you have a variant, and I think everybody I know that's done a test has a variant of some kind that would be actionable. It's really a question of, is it actionable for you right now? And mm -hmm. just because it isn't actionable right now, there could be a lot of benefit going down the road as you likely over the course of your life are going to run into these things. So we come into that a lot, but even on those core areas, cardiovascular, mental health, oncology, these are ones that we see pharmacy programs and the pharmacy leaders you mentioned putting a lot of effort into standardization measures and safety measures, whether adherence or precision of choices and decision-making that are supportive of medication safety. Can you tell me a little bit about how you view pharmacists inside this system? Because I think there's doctors on one side, there's, there's PBMs, there's the, the executive. What about the pharmacists? What is their role in all of this? Sure. Everyone who works with me knows that I love pharmacists. I'm not a pharmacist by training, but I've learned a lot about pharmacy over the years, working closely with them. And I love sharing the awesome things that pharmacists can do and have been doing for many years now. Working on our health system pharmacy specific team, I was able to see kind of this transformation of pharmacists from what was previously a cost center and a basement operation filling medication to a true strategic partner in the health system. Not that they weren't always doing that, but it was kind of, we saw this perception of health system pharmacists start to shift. That's not the case everywhere, but some of the most progressive health systems value their pharmacy leaders, and they often show that by giving them a higher title, like the chief pharmacy officer, like I mentioned earlier. But in general, my favorite thing about learning about pharmacists was how much of a clinical impact that they can have through a lot of the initiatives that we've already talked about today. So MedRec, diabetes management, medication therapy management overall. I think it would be a huge mistake just to kind of relegate them to the basement to go about their day filling medications. And I think bringing it back to this subject, their role is also growing a lot in personalized medicine and specifically with pharmacogenomics. I spoke with a handful of pharmacogeneticists who lead their health system pharmacogenomics programs, and they work closely with their provider partners to analyze those genetic results, implement medication decisions, educate others in the health system about the topic, which was just a blast to hear about these programs who are really expanding their reach within their system. But again, that's not really the norm. Like I said, not every health system is going to have a pharmacogeneticist. It's actually a pretty rare position. And I'm not saying that every health system should have one, but we're starting to see growth in both health system and provider pharmacogenomic programs. But I think that pharmacy should definitely play either a leading or major contributing role to those programs. It's such an excellent point for us. We really see pharmacists as being this fantastic group of innovators who are pushing the boundaries and they are really taking 
what we know, what's in the evidence, and try and do operationalize it inside of these systems. One thing I hear quite a lot, maybe you've heard this as well, is the idea that these pharmacists went to school because they wanted to have a real, durable, and, and daily impact on the quality of care. And within a model of the business model of cost to fill, which is what it looks like inside of a lot of retail pharmacy, they don't necessarily feel like they get that. And as soon as you get this more collaborative relationship, which I'm sure we hear about quite a lot inside of the more innovative and forward-looking health systems or inside of primary care practices with collaborative practice agreements, they get a chance to really step up and demonstrate the richness of that training and perspective that they can offer to improve patient care. So a few of those things you mentioned there, can you go over them again? You said there's genetic interpretation they're offering, they're supporting patient care in all these myriad ways. Can you dig into that a little bit? Because I think it's so rich to see what pharmacists are able to do now and what they could be able to do in the next handful of years. Where do you see it going? Sure. One of my most recent research projects last year was about pharmacists role in primary care. And that's kind of a broad name for it, but they can really do so much under that umbrella. So it mostly focused on medication therapy management, but I really wanted to dig down into the specific clinical initiatives that they were either leading or owning or focusing on. They focus a lot on diabetes management because that's really a tangible piece of a lot of the physician's goals. You can see if they're controlling their A1C. The pharmacist can have a closer relationship. They're seeing them in the retail pharmacy way more than they're seeing their primary care provider. So just kind of extending that relationship from pharmacists, not only in the clinic, but also pharmacists in the retail pharmacy. So diabetes management was a really huge piece that came out of that work. The other one is smoking cessation. Pharmacists can lead classes on that to really just boost the overall health of these patients who might have chronic conditions or comorbidities. Because it takes a lot of time to manage these chronic disease patients, and you really want to have a longer relationship with them, which the primary care provider might not always have the time to do. So the pharmacist is a really great tool to help manage these patients in coordination with the primary care provider. I I love hearing that. I think the future where we see pharmacists empowered in more places to offer that value is a really good future and one that we look forward to and are working towards. We've talked quite a bit around pharmacogenetics and around these health systems. Is there a question that I haven't asked you, something that is related to pharmacogenetics that jumped out as interesting that you think is really worth highlighting? Sure. I think the one thing that I'd call out relates to the work that my team has been doing this year, which was also surprising to me in the work about how many barriers there were between the different stakeholders related to the pharmacogenomics process. So we've mentioned them already today. So you have lab vendors, you have the analytics vendors, you obviously have the health system side, so pharmacists, physicians, IT, among others. And really what we found was that all of these different stakeholders were talking about pharmacogenomics, but they were using different words, oftentimes to describe the same thing. And that became really confusing. So going back to our initial goal with this project, we really wanted to break down those barriers trying to find things in a standard way and produce something that would bring all those different stakeholders to a common language so that they could talk about it the same way, which would hopefully advance the topic and programs a little faster. So we ended up making kind of an interactive glossary that focuses on some of the most commonly confused terms that we heard come up in relation to pharmacogenomics, as well as terms that we thought were just inherently important to understand the process. 
like I've said so many times today, we're not at a place where pharmacogenomics is widespread. So you really have to start at the foundation and make sure everyone's talking about it the same way and understands the goals in the same way before you can really build it up across the country and the world. It's interesting. So in addition to elevating the pharmacist to a chief pharmacy officer, which is a great idea, it almost sounds like you're suggesting that there needs to be in the ecosystem a translator in chief who's going to (laughs) bridge between these different groups. You brought up here the idea that there's some terms that are really used in different ways across each of these different groups. Is there one or a couple that jump out that you really shook your head and went, wow, we're talking on different planes here, talking different languages when we hear people talk about this term? Mm -hmm. Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, pharmacogenomics itself comes to mind. (laughs) And the differences are, they're really just semantics in most cases, but other times the difference is true and important. I mainly focused on non-oncology definitions of the word because, of course, there are different definitions related to oncology than there are to non-oncology, which also makes it more confusing. So just understanding that fact that different clinicians use the same word to mean different things. But the way that we looked at pharmacogenomics was that pharmacogenomics is looking at the entire genome, whereas another word that we've been using today, pharmacogenetics, really looks at a single gene or a single set of genes. Now, pharmacogenomics, I've been saying that all day, but that truly isn't widespread. Usually when we talk to programs at health systems, they may be called pharmacogenomics programs, but what they're really doing is pharmacogenetics. They're testing either a single gene or a smaller panel of genes rather than the entire genome because that's still pretty expensive and takes some time to do. So there was just a ton of little nuances like that that came up through our research, but most of it is semantics. Our our biggest takeaway is that people, when they're saying pharmacogenomics, they might mean pharmacogenetics, but they mean the same thing, and they have the same goal in mind, which is to, again, understand a patient's genetic makeup to inform better prescribing decisions down the line. I am so happy that you found a way to get pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics, the two loved and maligned words, brought into this and discussed the differences between them. It's a critical point. It's not an important point, but it's critical because it tangles <laughs> people up on the start line as they start looking at this space and they go, wait, yes. which one are we talking about? Which one matters? And again, I think your point is it doesn't really matter that much. They're used interchangeably. There is a nuanced difference between them, but don't get tripped up on it for anyone listening. <laughs> Run exactly. It's really around genetic level personalization of what's going to work for you. So let's jump into a final question. I think a question for the times, a question for 2020, which is really the COVID. And do you see any ways in which COVID has changed the way health systems are going to look at pharmacogenomics? Or when COVID has passed, do you think we're going to be right back on the same trajectory? Let opinions fly here. What do you think is going to be the opinion or the, uh, <laughs> the effect of COVID on this? Like I said before, I started this research pre-COVID-19 towards the beginning of this year. But as we were continuing to look into the topic, we started to see an intersection between pharmacogenomics and potential COVID-19 related applications. One example relates to helping providers identify drug-gene interactions, so kind of similar to a drug-drug interaction and patients as they relate to some of the experimental COVID-19 treatments that we were seeing earlier on in the pandemic in order to prevent those adverse reactions as they try to treat the virus. The second category of things that we saw start to pop up was about understanding the patient's genetic makeup to really see how that might impact how likely they are to contract the virus or maybe even how severe their form of the virus would be if it were to present. 
And the last category kind of goes back to something I was talking about earlier. It's not necessarily related specifically to treating the disease or preventing the disease, but it's really about kind of treating the aftermath of the pandemic. So with social distancing and quarantining, working from home, the last application that I started to see come up was in the mental health world. And we're already starting to see some of those effects. Lots of diagnoses of depression and anxiety are coming up. And like I said before, pharmacogenomics can really help get patients on the right medication faster, which reduces costs and time, all those things associated with that trial and error process. So those are kind of the three categories that we saw come up related to COVID-19. I think health systems and providers are certainly still overwhelmed from the pandemic. They're under a lot of stress from caring for COVID-19 patients. They're also under a lot of financial stress from delaying or canceling elective procedures. So they probably aren't going to be launching a pharmacogenomics program right now. But I think going back to some of those applications I talked about earlier, the pandemic has really shown that pharmacogenomics can be an opportunity to help those clinicians provide more targeted treatment, make more targeted prescribing decisions. And I really hope that this helps the field continue to grow. Couldn't agree more. For all of the uh, awful things that have come out with COVID-19, it would have been great if it was able to wipe away the challenge of medicating chronic conditions. Unfortunately, it won't. But I think that's an excellent place to leave it, is on the challenge folks are facing with mental health through this pandemic. I really hope for anyone that can be supported that pharmacogenetic tests can support them and help them identify a medication and a treatment plan that's going to work for them. I hope they're able to find it if pharmacogenetics can play a role there. We certainly love to see it because it's, uh, I think, an excellent application. But with that, thank you so much, Colleen. Uh, it was a really great discussion. I enjoy the perspective you offer here through your research. So where can people find you? Yeah, I enjoyed the discussion as well. I'm happy to provide my email address. I'm on LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can reach out to me at any time. I love talking about this stuff. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks again, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Precision Insights Podcast. And with that, we look forward to talking to you all again soon.